Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Lenny Mendonca. I'm a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and your moderator for today. As the club continues to host virtual events, we are grateful for the continued support of our members and donors. Visit commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership or support for the club with a tax-deductible gift. It's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. John Torres, Senior Medical Correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC, and author of the new book, which you can see right behind him, Dr. Disaster's Guide to Surviving Everything, Essential Advice for Any Situation Life Throws Your Way. Dr. Torres was an emergency room physician and throughout his career has made numerous rescue and humanitarian trips here in the U.S. and abroad in Central and South America to provide medical care to children in need. He's a U.S. Air Force veteran and a retired colonel who completed his tour of duty in Iraq in 2004. So, Dr. Torres, welcome. Welcome virtually to San Francisco. Lane, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, it's interesting doing it virtually. It's a little bit different than having you in our lovely facilities and uh, on the wharf in San Francisco, but we'll have to do that next time. You bet. And let me start just by asking a little bit of context about why you decided to write this book and where did it where did it come from? You know, my whole life has essentially been, especially my professional career, both in medicine and in the military, has been about disaster preparedness, getting ready for the uh, for the unexpected, but the inevitable that, you know, now we find out through the pandemic that these things happen and they happen a lot more often than we think. But the problem is when you talk about disaster preparedness, you don't get a lot of attention from people because it's one of those things that a lot of people, number one, hope don't happen. But if a lot of people also don't think it will happen. So oftentimes you're, you're speaking to an empty audience when you talk about this. So that was part of my, again, my professional career, but this actually started back when I was a child. My dad was a big outdoorsman, a big hunter, and he would take me with him. He would always teach me different things about being out there. And his common theme was essentially, hey, you know, pay attention to your surroundings, situational awareness, and just be ready for anything. And so throughout my life, I, I w- that was one of my foundational experiences. And so I kept that going throughout my life, taught that to my children. And then a couple of years ago, started thinking, you know, we're looking more and more at these things. I myself have been involved with some evacuations on my own, some evacuations where I've actually evacuated people out of areas. And it got to the point where I was like, you know, I think this is information people should know, need to know, and, and it's good to have an understanding of. And so I started developing the book a couple of years ago. And then, of course, the pandemic came along and it really highlighted the fact that this information is extremely important and just, and not necessarily the specific information, which certainly helps, but the overall themes as well. Okay. And in, in uh, the early part of the book, you described uh, some of your early days when you were in the Air Force and talking to your father and about uh, what you were feeling and what you thought about him. And he had some advice for you. What, what did he tell you? Yeah, his main advice was always to just, you know, number one, pay attention. Situational awareness is an amazing thing that a lot of people often don't have. And nowadays we're so ingrained in our phones and we're always looking at our phones that we frequently forget to look around. But part of it was that situational awareness, looking around, but also the understanding of how to go through these survival situations. The, the, The life experience I learned, and I talk about this in the book, when I was at the Air Force Academy my first year, and the Air Force Academy is not easy to go through, uh, that first year is particularly tough. And at the end of that first year, I, like the vast majority of my classmates, had thought, you know, I don't know if the military is for me. My dad was in the Air Force. So I grew up around the military. I was going into the military now, and I thought, you know, I'm not sure I want to do that. And so at the end of that freshman year, we were called dualies. I decided I was going to leave the Air Force Academy, move somewhere, and go to a different college, a real college, as we called it. And my dad, I knew he was disappointed, but at the same time, he was very supportive of the decisions I made. And so he sat down with me and he said, John, do me a favor. I know you're thinking of quitting, which is your decision to make. I don't agree with it, but it's your decision to make. But do me one favor. And I've never really asked you for favors. You are coming up on survival training because we did that in the summer between our freshman and sophomore year. You're coming up on survival training. Do the survival training and then quit after that because that survival training will help you throughout the rest of your life, whether you know it or not. And at the time, I didn't really agree with him, but I thought, okay, he's asking me a favor. He doesn't do that very often. I'll go through survival training. Well, once I got through survival training, which turned out to be the toughest part of the four years, 
it was downhill from there. So I decided to stay, but he was right. That survival training gave me the education, the information and the tips I need to move throughout life because it just taught you so many different things. And I can't overemphasize how important that was. It uh, sounds like a grueling way to learn about survival, but what, what was that experience like and why was it so formative in your thinking about being prepared? You know, interestingly, the, mo- the reason it was most formative is because it showed me that I could do anything if I put my mind to it. If I really, if I really make sure that I make the effort, I can do anything. And in this particular situation, I can do those things that, that are life-saving. And so you went into survival training. It got split into a couple different areas. The first area was, so it's, it's called series, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. And so survival and evasion are two parts of it. The resistance and escape are a second part. The resistance and escape was essentially teaching you how, and remember, this is the military, teaching you how if you're captured in wartime, what you need to do, how you need to survive that type of situation. But for me, the most important part was that survival and evasion, because what we had to do is they basically set off, set us off into the wild. They dropped us off with just a little bit of food, not even one meal, and left us out there for three days you're with two other people. You had to go from point A to point B to point C to point D on a map. So you had to learn map reading. You had to know map reading. You had to know how to count your steps. You were evading the enemy who was chasing you. So you didn't have time to sit there and set up snares or traps. You basically just had to go on and run and do things. But you learned over that time period how to take care of yourself in these austere situations. And when you were done with it, even though it was grueling and even though you went through a lot in that three-week period, you learned that you could take care of yourself if you just took a few seconds and thought about what you need to do. Great. And uh, mentioned in the book that there are uh, things that the human body can survive with for different periods of time. Uh, you know, feels like in, in an urgent setting, those get all mixed up and you're not trying to think rationally. It's probably pretty good to remember those. So how do you, know, you we have this? I was going to say, we have Maslow's hierarchy, which if you look at it, it talks about different things you need, you know, food, shelter, care, love, all those things. But this this basically boils down to what do you need to survive? And it shows you just how you should start looking for things if you're in a situation like that. And you never know when you're going to be in a situation like that. You could slide off the road in the middle of a blizzard and the car gets covered by snow. You could be in some area where all of a sudden a wildfire crops up on you and you have to figure out how to get out of there. But what the rule of threes are, are essentially the things you need to do to survive, basically survive. And it goes like this. You can live three minutes without oxygen, so you have to breathe. You can live three hours without shelter in extreme situations, blizzards, extreme heat, three hours without shelter. You can live three days without water, and you can live three weeks without food. So if you think about it, those are the criteria you need to follow. Number one, oxygen, extremely important. We're lucky enough to have it around us in most situations. But then the next one is that shelter. If you're in an extreme situation, it doesn't make sense to look for water or look for food if that shelter is the most important thing. So look for shelter. And then after that, look for a water source. You're going to survive a while without food. And so food should be the last thing you look for. And granted, you're going to get gnawing hungry. You're going to be as hungry as you've never been, ever been. But at the same time, getting that water, getting that shelter, and making sure you can breathe are the things that are going to keep you alive. Okay, that's great. So uh, you also talk about disaster being your frenemy and that you're, uh, as the, the title of the book said, although I can't do it the way Al Roker did it in today because I don't have background sound effects, <laughs> Dr. Disaster. So what, what what is it about you that that draws you to these things and, and motivates you continuing to put yourself in those situations? You know, part of it, throughout my career, I've been an adrenaline junkie, and that's part of, you know, being a pilot in the Air Force, uh, skydiving, all the things I've done. You know, I used to race bicycles and then went into emergency medicine. So all that has to do with, you know, that adrenaline and being a bit of an adrenaline junkie. But at the same time, I also had this mandate in my life to try and help other people as much as I can. And so I was drawn to these disasters to try and help out people as best I can. And at the same time, understanding that I needed to stay safe as well, because I wanted to get back to my family. And so I would go to these various areas. I would go to, you know, South and Central America, like you talked to. I've been on rescue missions at the South Pole in Antarctica, you know, trying to get people out of there. I've been uh, in the midst of hurricanes, you know, evacuating hospitals in the National Guard in the midst of a hurricane, wildfires myself. And so 
it's not that I look out for these things and try to find them, but at the same time, if they come up, I certainly try to help out as much as I can. And part of that is understanding the preparedness you need to go in because one of the last things you want to do is go in to try to help and you become a victim that somebody else has to try and rescue. And so you have to make sure, and oftentimes you'll hear in the media that, you know, how come these people, how come they didn't get help they needed? How come these people weren't helping them? And oftentimes that's because they weren't prepared to help them and they were trying to get prepared to the point where they weren't going to turn into victims as well. And so that was always a big mandate. And so these things just kind of followed on top of each other to the point where after a while I became sort of, I became the expert in this area of being able to, to help people survive essentially. And I, I get the adrenaline part. It's got to be, um, you know, probably nothing like it when you're in the middle of trying to help people in that situation. But how do you, how do you keep your wits about you and your own emotions uh, in check when you're trying to, to help people through a, through a disaster? Yeah. And that's the hardest thing to do too, because you see people around you panicking and when they, when they panic, the natural inclination is for you to panic as well. But the problem is, is you know that if everybody panics and nothing is going to happen productively. And one of the stories I talk about is when I was a pilot in the air force, I had, I was an instructor pilot. So I was one of the top pilots and had a co-pilot with me that was younger. And we were in the middle of some weather and weather when you're flying, we've all been in turbulence in an airplane, but the weather can really get to a point where it's getting, it's getting life-threatening. And we had gotten in a situation where the weather moved in a lot quicker than we thought it would. And so we ended up having to try and figure out where to go. Well, my co-pilot started panicking. And so I, I gave him the assignment. I've said, you know, even though I knew where the alternative bases were, I gave him the assignment of finding the alternative bases. And so he had to put himself in a book. He had to make radio calls. He had to do these things. And then when we landed, he was asking me, he said, you know, you seem very calm during this whole thing. I was panicking. I was calm. And I said, yeah, I know you were panicking. And that's why I gave you that assignment, because it's best to give somebody something to do. And that way they don't panic. They're focusing on something. And But I, I'll tell you something. I'll tell you the honest truth. I said, inside, I was as panicky as you were because I knew we were in a hurting situation. But I couldn't show that to you because if I showed that to you, then we're both in the cockpit panicking and we'll end up dying. And so we want to make sure that if I keep calm, you're going to keep calm. And then you just learn throughout these experiences that somebody has to be there to make these decisions. Somebody has to be there to keep everybody else calm. And even in medicine, emergency medicine, we would have what we call codes where people come in and they're either a trauma code where they've you know, gotten in a trauma situation or they've been shot or something like that. Or it's a, a medical code. They've had a heart attack or stroke or something. And my job was to go in and, and save their life, essentially. But it gets very chaotic when those, ha those situations happen because a lot of members come, a lot of hospital staff comes in there, and it can turn into a panicky situation very quickly. So my job was always to get everybody to stop talking, take a few seconds to breathe, and then move on to what we need to do. And as I describe in the book, one of the things I, that I thought was amazing was watching that movie Martian at the end where Matt Damon was talking about his experience and they asked him, how'd you get through this? He goes, you know, there's a thousand things that went wrong all at once. You just need to take it one at a time, fix number one, and then move on to number two and then fix number two and move on to number three. And so you just need to do that, but somebody needs to make sure you're doing that. And that's the person who steps up and says, here's how we're going to do it. Here's the decision you make, whether it's right or wrong, it's a decision. So at least you're moving in a direction. That's great. Well, I, uh, Certainly, if we're in a disaster, I want to have you in the room guiding us and <laughs> keeping us calm. Um, so, uh, the uh, you know you mentioned that you were a you you, you teach these topics in uh, in Belgium uh, uh, for military officers. So, what's what what are they learning, and how do you get them in the right experience set and frame of mind? So I teach NATO medical or special forces medics and special forces other personnel. And we particularly teach them this one thing called TCCC, which is tactical combat casualty care. And this is kind of the example of what I was talking about earlier. What the military learned, and for those who remember it from the movie Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu, when they had that incident go on there, that was a big turning point for the military and particularly for special forces. And up until then, the mantra was, which it still is, you know, leave no man behind, but they would look at it differently back then. And so if somebody got shot, two or three people would go in to try to pull that person out. Well, we found out in Mogadishu that when that happened, so one person got shot, two or three people went in. Now you have 
three or four people who are shot, more people go in. And so it keeps escalating. So what they've come down with now is teaching them, hey, you know, that person needs to take care of themselves as best they can. You need to take care of yourself and make sure the enemy's not firing at you. And then you can start rescuing that person, you know, safety first. Otherwise, you turn into a victim like I talk about. So we teach them that. Plus, we teach them Again, that teamwork, how to work together in these situations. And then we start throwing different scenarios at them. We have a simulation center where we'll start throwing, where we can simulate guns, you know, gun battles, explosions, smoke, fire, all these different things. And so we'll give them these simulations to show them again. The main point here is that, hey, if you think about it for half a second, you can make a good decision. And one of the biggest things we teach them is that that indecision, that inactivity is one of the things that gets people in trouble. And so just make a decision. And as my father used to always tell me, hesitation kills. So make a decision, move in a direction. If it's the wrong direction, change directions, but at least you're moving, at least you're doing something, which is the important part. And how much um, of that kind of training and perspective um, can you actually teach in advance of being in a setting, as opposed to the way you really learn this is having been in a number of settings where you're uh, experiencing it firsthand. Is this really something that you, you preparation and teaching can help? You know, I think you perfect it as you get in more situations, but I think you can learn it before you even get into those situations. And it's essentially everyday life because we all get into situations where, uh, you know, we, we could run into trouble if we make decisions or don't make decisions and go in a certain direction. And the story I like to tell people all the time is in the emergency room, I frequently get parents in there whose children have been hurt and they've had some issue. And I talk about this in the book, how, you know, trampoline accidents in particular, you know, with the trampoline, if you have one kid on a trampoline, maybe two kids on a trampoline, not a big deal. But when you get dad and child on a trampoline, that's a setup for disaster because somebody's going to get hurt. And it's usually the child. And then, you know, the rest of the family's not very happy with dad. But what I say is, you know, when they come in, parents come in and they're teary, teary eyed because their child's been hurt. What I frequently tell the parents is, you know, I don't know how any of us got to be adults because we all did something as children that we sh- we should have gotten really hurt or should have maybe not survived, but we did somehow. We learn from those experiences. And as we learn from those experiences, they start piling on each other. And you just have to look back and go, okay, last time this happened, I learned a little bit. This time this happened, I'm learning a little bit more. So I think you can learn without having too many of these experiences, but you can perfect that as the experiences go on and on. Okay, that's great. But there there is important elements of um, core things to keep in mind, things that, that are that may not be natural instincts, but when you've been taught them, that's kind of go to, to your, like your three, your threes, you know, just remember that's what's more, most important. Exactly. And that's, and that's probably the biggest thing is learning these different, uh, again, perfecting it like, you know, okay, I know now that, you know, the shelter is more important than the water, at least initially, and then I can get water and then I can get food and, and the similar type things, you know, how to navigate a map, all those things that can be very helpful are important. And one of the other two, tools I bring up in here is, you know, we used, I taught my kids this all the time. Every time we go out and being here in Colorado, we go on a lot of hikes, camping trips. Every time we go out, I would always say, if you get lost for whatever reason, hug a tree. And I didn't mean necessarily hug the tree, but I meant stay close to that tree because when search and rescue is looking for you, they're using a grid system. And if you keep moving, they're going to keep missing you. So if you stay in one place, they're going to find you. And so it's just little things like that 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 I think that you can learn as time goes on and perfect as time goes on. That's great. So as I was uh, reading your book, um, the section on natural disasters um, felt like um, just an enumeration of everything that happens in California. And we don't really have very many tornadoes, but pretty much everything there sometime during the year, someplace in the- Not tornadoes yet. Yeah, right. Certainly feels like things were happening, but let's talk a little bit about natural disasters since- um, you know, they, they seem to be always in front of us. And just uh, this week had another reminder with the governor of California putting another multi-hundred million dollar preparation budget into what will likely be the another of the worst, if not the worst wildfire seasons ever in California as we're in a nasty drought. But let's start with fires, just as something that uh, wildfires is something that, you know, many Californians, unfortunately, are have or will have the experience in the in the coming months. What what are the the most important things you need to think about as we're heading into into wildfire season? And then if we're if you're experiencing one, 
So, you know, it's interesting because I live in Colorado and Colorado is probably only second to California in the amount of wildfires we have. And we're coming, even though, even last night we got snow, but we're still coming into what we call our red flag season, which is, you know, it's it, stuff is so dry. It's so easy to catch fire. A couple of points to remember is number one is the biggest advice I can give you. If you hear the word evacuation, if you're getting, if the authorities are telling you to either pre-evacuate, which means get ready to evacuate or to evacuate, listen to them because the people that run into problems are the people that don't for whatever reasons. They have a variety of reasons for staying behind, but that's when they run into problems because one of the things they don't realize, and this is kind of the theme throughout the book is especially as Americans, we're very used to other people coming in to help us. And wildfires are one example. Hurricanes are a bigger example that before the hurricane's even over, there are convoys of trucks from other states coming in to, to, you know, American Red Cross, different utility companies, a lot of NGOs and non-government organizations coming in to supply help. Well, in situations like this, especially a wildfire, nobody can get in there until that fire is gone because it's unsafe. In case of a pandemic like we have now, we all found out that at a certain point, we're all going to have to take care of ourselves because there's nobody to come help us because they're taking care of themselves as well. So that evacuation notice is extremely important. And the state authorities, the local authorities, they don't give those out lightly because they've been, in the past, they've had issues and criticisms for calling for an evacuation that wasn't necessarily needed. So now they're very careful and judicious about it. So if you hear that word evacuate, get out of there because number one, wildfires are very unpredictable. They can go in any number of directions and do any number of things. And number two, you cannot outrun a wildfire. They're so fast and incredibly, they spread incredibly rapidly. You just can't outrun them. And then of course, number three, they can be deadly. Both the, the heat from the fire itself, the smoke from the fire can cause problems. Uh, and so you, you have to treat them very, very carefully. The example I give in the book is I was involved in a wildfire here called the Waldo Canyon Fire. And it's one of the beautiful canyons we have here. Thankfully, it's starting to grow back now. But a few years ago, the Waldo Canyon Fire, I lived in part of Colorado, Colorado Springs in Colorado that uh, had, was not even really close to that canyon. There was a canyon between us and there called Queens Canyon. And so you had Waldo Canyon, Queens Canyon, and Arcan. In Waldo Canyon, there was a big lake called Rampart Reservoir that was huge. And that's where the fire department set up their last stand, basically. They said, okay, well, the fire will come up to here. We'll watch the fire, and it'll die out because that lake's in the way. Well, it didn't die out because this fire was what we call a tree-topping fire. So it just goes right along the top of the trees. It doesn't even get down low, and it just keeps skimming. And so it just skipped right across the lake. And then the last stand was, okay, Queens Canyon, that was a huge canyon, and the fire would have to go down and up and out, and there's no way it's going to do that. It's going to burn out before it does that. Well, the, what happened was it was, this, it was a perfect storm, essentially. It was about three different thunderstorm systems that moved in together, and they pushed this wind up to like 60 to 100 miles an hour, and so it just topped right over the canyon. It didn't even go down. just came right over the top and into the city, and that's when the city called the evacuation order, and literally... As I'm in my car, because they called it last minute, getting away, you can see flames behind you. And so it's one of those things, you know, getting out of there. Luckily, they had done a pre-evacuation. So our stuff was loaded up. I had to help a couple of neighbors, especially some elderly neighbors that were having trouble getting out of there. But you know, we all ended up getting out of there. And again, the main thing with wildfires is just evacuate. Don't, pay, don't play around with them. Okay. And um, we're hopefully, knock on wood, have a little bit of time before we're deep in that season. I mean, you said you're already starting to see it, but what in the meantime, what can we be doing to prepare ourselves, our households, our families for might happen? So one of the biggest things you can do, not just for a wildfire, but for anything else is to have what I, it's called a go bag or a bug out bag. It's different things. And essentially it's a bag with the essentials you need to survive for a few days on your own without anything you have in the house and potentially to not have a house to go back to. And so some of the things I have in my bug out bag are, you know, a little bit of food, you know, some water, depending on the season, I'll change them out. It'll be winter clothes in the winter, you know, summer type clothes and insect repellent in the summer, but also things that are important to you. Like if there's paperwork that you particularly can't live without that you need, have that in there. 30 days supply of medications, have that in there. First aid kit, regardless of the season, you should have some type of first aid kit in there. If you're here, like here in Colorado, where we might be leaving and having to survive in the outdoors, some type of fire starter, some type of shelter can help as well. Uh, so those things are important. 
in my book, I have a list of a lot of things you can put in there with the understanding that it needs to be customized to you and your family. Because if you have kids, it's going to be different than if you have adults. So that's one of the things you can do. The other one is, which I'm sure it's a word you guys use a lot in California because we do in Colorado, is mitigate around your house. And the mitigation means trying to get anything flammable or super flammable away from your house. One example I have is the uh, juniper is a big thing here, juniper trees, and they're actually little bushes. But unbeknownst to me, and I learned this during the Waldo Canyon fire, is juniper has a very flammable sap. And so if fire hits juniper, it basically explodes and just spreads the fire. And so getting that we had juniper around our house and we learned to mitigate and get that juniper away. And, uh, you know, we, we hear about it. We see it in TVs and stuff. The one thing you don't want to do is, is, you know, sit there while the fire is raging, trying to spray with the hose because that hose is essentially no amount of water. Um, you know, beforehand, if you can wet things down, that can help. But, you know, during the fire, again, evacuation is the key. That's great. And just a reminder to our audience, we're today speaking with Dr. John Torres, the senior medical correspondent for NBC News and MSNBC. And we're talking to him in particular about his new book, Dr. Disaster's Guide to Surviving Everything, Essential Advice for Any Situation Life Throws Your Way. Thank you again, Dr. Torres, for joining us today. You bet. Um, so the um, other interesting section. One of the other interesting sections of your book was uh, how things that do in the outdoors. Um, and if you're hiking or camping, the likelihood that you're going to come on, across some uh, wildlife that may be a hazard to you is something that all of us uh, have experienced as or, or will probably experience, and I'm sure you have. So what what's the, the key things to remember about dealing with wildlife? Yeah, and you're right. If you go in the outdoors, there's a very big chance that you're going to encounter some kind of wildlife. And we've all seen the movies where there's that rabid animal that attacks you and you, there's not much you can do about it. That is extremely, extremely rare. An animal with rabies or other aggressive tendencies will attack you just out of the blue. And they're not going to attack you because they're looking for food. You're way too big for them to attack for food sources because you have the ability to fight back. They go after vulnerable, small creatures. But there's a few reasons they might attack. Number one, and probably the biggest one by far, is you surprise the animal. And much like when we get surprised, we're going to strike out. If they get surprised, they're going to strike out as well. Number two is they're protecting some kind of food source that you, that you somehow came upon. And they're going to protect that as much as they can. But even more importantly, the thing they're going to protect, essentially to the point where they die, is they're going to protect their young ones. So if you come up, particularly a bear with cubs, and we've all heard stories of mama bears and joke around about protective mothers being mama bears. Mother bears will essentially kill themselves, sacrifice themselves to protect their cubs. And so if you come up on cubs, one of the big things I say in the book is, you know, get out of there as soon as you can, because you don't want to be near those cubs as cute as they are, because somewhere out there is mama bear and she's going to protect them to all extreme extremes. But a couple of things to remember, you know, overall for the animals, and it's going to, it's going to depend on what animal you're talking about to a certain extent, but overall for the most important thing to remember is again, don't panic. You don't want to run because animals instinct are to chase down their prey. And so if you run, they're going to chase, that's just instinctive on their part. And they might not even know why. So what you want to do is the first thing you want to do is if you come upon an animal is stop and just be really calm, stop back up very calmly and very slowly and essentially just you know, try to talk to them in a very calm voice. And that's step number one. You know, if that doesn't work, then the next thing you want to do, because animals are only going to go after something they think they can defeat, again, except for the, the protecting their cubs part, but they're going to go after what they think they can defeat. And so you want to get as big as possible. And if you have a coat, open up your coat, wave your arms, scream and shout, try and be the aggressor that the, that the animal doesn't want to go after. And if that doesn't work, you know, try to get out of there as soon as possible. Leave your backpack on your back. So if something happens, they're attacking your backpack. And then finally, if the animal does attack for some reason, for the most part, you want to fight back. Brown bears are a little bit different, but for the most part, you want to fight back as best you can because they're only going to go to a certain extent of getting you. They're, they're trying right now to get you away from whatever you happen to stumble upon. And so as soon as you do that, they're going to leave you alone. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that's very concerning because, again, they're instinctively going to go after the smaller ones because they know they can win that battle a lot easier. And so if you have family members with you, young ones with you, number one, before you go in there, tell them, you know, hey, don't run no matter what you do, because if you know my child goes off running that direction, whatever animal is going to take off after them. And there's not a lot I can do to try and get them down because that animal is going to be faster than all of us. And so just tell your children, hey, don't panic. And then in the midst of it, just tell your kids, hey, you know, hey, Bobby, you know, start walking backwards, you know, just slowly walk backwards. I'm going to stay here and distract the animal. And, you know, that turns to the point where you have to decide at what point, you know, okay, am I going to distract the animal and am I going to become the animal's aim versus my kids, my family, let them get out of there. And then I'll do what I can to survive the situation. But if it's a friend you don't like, you tell them to start running and don't worry <laughs> yeah. about it. If it's a guy that owes you money, uh, it depends how much money he owes you, I guess. <laughs> um, more generally on family preparation, um, whether it's uh, whether you're heading out to a to a outdoor adventure or just being prepared for disasters, um, how, how do you advise families to be, to be prepared? What are the things they should be doing in addition to the to the the pack you said to make sure you have? You know, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of, and my kids will tell you that throughout our life, they, the, there are these certain things I would always say that they would just, you know, roll their eyes, but at least they paid attention to. And probably the number one thing was to keep your head on a swivel, which basically means situational awareness. Don't put your head in your phone and not know what's going on around you. And regardless, whether you're at a shopping mall, you're at a theater, you're walking downtown, you're out in the woods, just that situational awareness is extremely important. But also understand that if things do happen, you know, number one, talk to them about, okay, you know, here's what we're going to do if something happens. You know, we're number one, are going to try and keep together as best we can. If for some reason somebody gets lost, hug a tree like we were talking about. You know, we'll come find you or search and rescue will come find you. But don't try to move from there and try to find us. Just stay where you are unless you know exactly where we are and you can hear us because otherwise it turns into a chase. And then, especially not necessarily in the wild, but in regular life in general, if something happens, where are we going to meet? And one of the things, you know, we talked about teaching NATO special forces. One of the things we teach them all the time is what they call the PACE protocol. And PACE in military parlance is primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency. And it's basically plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D. And so the example we usually give them is in a wartime situation, a battle situation. If somebody gets injured, what's your primary mode of evacuating that injured person? And usually it's a, what we call a medevac, a helicopter dedicated to evacuating injured personnel. Well, if the medevac can't get in for some reason, how are you going to do this? Well, we'll do what's called a casavac, which is just any airplane, we, any helicopter we can find, we'll throw them on there and get them to the hospital. Well, if that doesn't work because the weather's bad, what are you going to do? Well, we'll steal a vehicle and get them out of there on the vehicle. That's the contingency. And if that doesn't work, you know, the emergency at the, at the emergency basis, I'll throw them on a donkey and ride them out of here if I have to, you know, whatever it takes. Well, same thing in life. Tell children, you might not have to go all the way down to D, but basically say, you know, if something happens and we get separated for whatever reason, wildfire, hurricane, tornado, doesn't matter, you know, terrorist activity, any kind of reason like that, and we can't meet at our house, you know, plan A will be meeting back at our house. Plan B will be meeting at Aunt Sally's house who lives on the other side of town. We're going to go there. You do what it takes to get there, regardless of if you have to beg, borrow, steal a ride, you get there as best you can. And then plan C will be if for some reason the city's having issues, we'll meet at Uncle Charlie's in the next city over and we'll wait there until you get there. So just have those plans set up. So and part of that is giving the kids confidence. OK, if something happens, I know what to do. Uh, and just talking to your children about different situations. My kids all the time, again, one of the things they're tired of is every time we go to a theater, I ask them, okay, what, if something happened, how would you get out of here? And initially, most people are like, I'd get out the exits I can see. Well, don't forget about the ones behind you or the ones to the side of you. And so just have an understanding of how you can get out of there, particularly if, you know, unfortunately here in Colorado, we've had some shooting incidences. One of them was the Aurora Theater shooter where he came in one of the exits at the down, at the the down near the screen. And so people didn't know they could get out through the back. And so that caused some issues. You know, there's been a lot of instances of that throughout history. So just have an understanding of how you can evacuate certain areas and then what to do when it's all over, who to contact, how to get a hold of people. Extremely important. Okay, that's great. It's really, really helpful. Even if you say it every time, it's good to keep drawing into people. Um, you also mentioned about theaters and, and malls, about what you should do when you walk in to, to make sure you know how to get out. It seems like a uh, sensible thing to do, but I'll bet most people don't. 
Yeah, and, and, and most people don't do that, and they don't do it for a very good reason. You know, that's just not something they're thinking about. And, and natural inclination is to essentially leave the way you came in. And the example I give in a mall, if you come in the north side of a mall, there's an entrance there, and you're halfway through the mall, if something happens, you're going to go back out through that north side of the mall. Well, there might be a side entrance that's much quicker and doesn't necessarily have to get you past whatever the problem might be. You know, obviously, the, the big thing a lot of people think about are, you know, a shooter coming into the mall. How do I get out of here? Uh, so when you get to the situation like that, and I tell people all the time, you know, don't be paranoid. Don't be overly concerned about it. But at the same time, just kind of look around and see where the exits are. Here in the U.S., we're very good about having exit signs. Other countries aren't quite as good at that. So if you're in a situation, particularly in another country, you know, look around, see where the exits are. Just do that really quickly so it's in the back of your mind. So if something does happen, you know which way to go because, you know, one of the first mandates to any kind of especially shooter situations, mass shooter situations, one of the first things you want to do is you want to run. But you want to run to where you're running away from them and trying to get out of the environment as quickly as you can. So knowing where those exits are is extremely important. And then go about your mall business and have as much fun as you, as you can, but at the same time with that understanding. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, nothing ever happens. But if it does, you want to be the person that's ready. Right. Okay, that's great. Um, just a reminder to the audience, if you have questions, please please post them in the chat. We'll be going to those in a in a couple minutes here. But um, let me go back to the the emergency disaster kit that you said that that we should all have in our on our home for whatever might be coming at us. Um, you mentioned some of the things that should be in there, but what are, are there particular pieces of equipment or tools or or things that should be in that in everyone's emergency disaster kit? You know, one of the biggest tools, I'm a firm believer in the multi-tools. You know, they have a knife, a screwdriver, a file, those things. Those work pretty well. The thing with a multi-tool, it's it's not perfect at any one thing, but it's great at a lot of little things. And so it gives you some, you know, it gives you the use of all those. On top of that, I'd have a knife set up too, especially if you're here in Colorado, like I said, where we go to the outdoors, a knife comes in very handy for, you know, cutting down limbs or doing different things you need to do, you know, tree limbs. Um, also a flashlight. You're going to be out there at night and you're going to need some kind of light, especially if you're trying to move at nighttime. Or even if you come in a situation like here, you know, I'm in my house and we have a power outage. Nobody really predicted what happened in Texas a few weeks ago where they had a huge cold storm, the snowstorm, and it knocked out power for days. And I, like everybody else, had somebody we knew down there that was having issues. Having that, that light is going to be extremely important because as people, we like having that light at night. I'm an advocate of having the headbands. They look kind of goofy, but they work great because they release your hands to do other things. You just put it across, you just put it on your head. It looks like you're spelunking, but at the same time, it gives you a, a ability to do other things. And if you can get a lamp that has a red light associated with it too, that you can switch to a red light, that can help particularly at night because then you're not blinding yourself trying to find something and then you have to wait for your eyes to adjust. So I think those are some important things. And then depending on where you live and what you think you might be doing, you know, here in Colorado, you know, obviously, we might be going to the outdoors, same thing in California. So having a heat source like a stove or something could certainly help or some way of, of you know, matches, especially waterproof matches can be extremely important because having that ability to light the fire can be important, not just to having food, but also to having comfort. Okay, great. Um, you had a whole nother section in your book on man-made disasters and um, thinking about how we prepare for uh, things that, um, you know, whether it's a as you mentioned, a, a shooter in a in a in a movie theater or uh, some accident that that happened, a car accident or or, or other things, um, are, uh, are are you seeing more concerns about man-made accidents these year these days, given what's going on, and 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 how how should we be thinking about those types of things? Yeah, I am seeing more concern about those, especially over the last you know twenty or thirty years. It certainly escalated, and people are. Or have both an understanding of that these things could possibly happen, but also what to do in case they happen. And like I mentioned, when we were talking about the mall, you know, if you have a shooter here in the U.S., it tends to be shooters. Other countries, particularly England, it happens to be more knife stabbing type situations because they don't have access to the guns that we have here. But regardless of what you're in, the mandates are essentially the same. And there's three basic themes you need to think about. The most important thing is to get out of that situation. So if you can run, that's priority number one. 
and don't worry about being you know, a coward or a chicken or anything like that, because if you can run, you're getting out of that situation. If it's a terrorist, their job is to instill terror. Their job is to do as much damage as possible. If it's something like some, like, unfortunately, we have shootings at schools. And I was actually involved in a news story where we went to a school where they're teaching them how to do first aid and how to put tourniquets on each other, which has gotten to that level where they have to be concerned at, at the high schools. So, you know, that running is extremely important in teaching our kids the same thing. If running doesn't work because you're trapped in an area where you can't run to, then number two would be hiding and hiding as best you can. You don't necessarily want to hide in a big group because that makes it a, a good target. You want to hide in smaller groups or even individually, but hide in a place where you can lock a door, you can turn the lights out, you can shut the blinds where they're not going to look for, they're not going to look for that. They're looking for uh, easy opportunities. So they're looking for the door that's unlocked or easy to open up. They're looking for places where there's a number of people they can inflict damage on. So if you can hide in that fashion by yourself or with small groups, it's important. And then number three, if worse comes to worse, fight, because all else is going to be lost at that point. So just fight as much as you can. Number one, you might survive the situation, but as important, you might give other people the opportunity to run or hide in that time period. And unfortunately, it's hard to think of it that way, but that's part of what you have to think about. And a couple of examples I give in the book, which I think are good examples. There was actually a picture of a, of a stabbing in, um, the, uh, in England, in London. And the, what the picture showed is people running away from the, from the stabbing, the person who's doing the stabbing. And which is, again, priority number one is to run if you can. So you know, run, hide, fight. One of the persons running away, which caused a lot of jokes, was a gentleman. They had been at a pub and he had a pint of beer in his hand. And he's running away holding the pint of beer. So, of course, that led to a lot of questions, a lot of jokes about, oh, the Brits, you know, they're not going to get rid of their beer, even in the midst of a terrorist attack. Well, a lot of experts, and myself included, went on and said, hey, this guy actually did something very smart because he's got some weapons right now. He's got the beer he can throw in the guy's face. He's got the glass of beer he can throw in the guy's face. He's got weapons he can fight with. And so that's important. It gives him time to get away. Another incident I talk about in the book was in uh, – Again, in London, I don't know if you remember the, the London Bridge incident where the guy drove the car down the bridge and did some stabbings. If you look at the stabber there in one of the scenes, there's a guy there with a narwhal tusk. And he's using that narwhal tusk to keep the stabber at bay. Well, he had been at a fishing museum going through a class. And when this happened, he looked up on the wall and the tusk was there. And so he thought, you know, these things are six feet long. So he's like, mm, I might as well grab the tusk and use that as a weapon. So again, just thinking outside the box of things you can do in the midst of all this. And that saved a lot of people's life. The fact that he was able to keep this guy cornered with the narwhal tusk and keep himself safe. So again, if, if it gets to that fighting point, one of the things I talk about in the book, don't worry about fighting clean. You fight as dirty as you can. You be as mean, aggressive, and as dirty as you can because you're trying to save your life and somebody else's life. That sounds like good advice. So if you can't find a tusk, at least hold your beer. That's remember. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so we've spent uh, the bulk of our hour and have not yet touched about the pandemic. Um, we do want to make sure we spend some time on that. And um, you've been covering this for uh, for NBC during the whole time that it's been going on. And are there any things that you see now that uh, that get you worried about where, where we're heading and things like the new variants or the J&J concerns that came up yesterday? Uh, any any yeah. thoughts? Yeah, the, the vaccines, actually, I have no concerns about the vaccines at this point because the ones we have, especially Pfizer, Moderna, have done a fantastic job. If you remember last summer, the experts were talking about, we were hoping we could get the vaccine in 12 to 18 months, which would still be you know, right around this time frame. We just start to get them. And they were hoping, the FDA actually said at that point, that they weren't even going to look at it unless it was at least 50% effective. So they were looking for that very low effective number based on what the flu shot is, which is usually around the 50% number. Well, it turns out we got this in 10 months and it was 95% effective. And so much quicker, much more effective than we thought it would ever be. And it turns out to be extremely safe. 190 million shots have been given, extremely safe vaccines and extremely effective vaccines. Of course, something like this happens and it's inevitable because there's so many vaccines being given out there that we're going to have issues like this where the six women have gotten these blood clots that they're still trying to figure out they're associated with the vaccine. But at the same time, they want to make sure it's safe. And so 
one thing I tell people on air all the time is this should give you a lot of comfort and confidence that the government, that the FDA in particular, the oversight for these medicines and these vaccines is doing its job. It's essentially saying we don't know if there's a connection, but we don't want to wait to find out. We're going to put a pause on the vaccine. We'll look into it and then we'll restart it with an understanding of why those why that happened. And if there is a connection with an understanding of, of who may, maybe shouldn't be getting it, who maybe should be getting it, so we have a better understanding of, of the safety profiles behind it. This doesn't mean the human trials weren't, weren't right because the human trials were done and two months of data was collected, and these incidents happened within two weeks of getting the shot. They just didn't show up because they are so rare these cases are 0.0001%, that's three zeros, 1% chance of getting it, extremely low. They're not going to show up with, the, with the, the tens of thousands that were done in the trials. They're going to show up with the millions that are vaccinated in the real world. But again, I have every confidence in the vaccine. And I think the one thing the pandemic has shown me is a couple of things. One is how resilient people are. And that's one thing I talk about in the book, having that will to survive, extremely important because that's going to get you out of a lot of situations. Even if you do things wrong, having that will to survive, having a reason to come back from a situation is going to be extremely important. For a lot of people, it's, it's you know, the family, the kids. I want to get back to them. But the resilience we've shown during this pandemic, we're very resilient. But the other thing we've shown, too, is that human behavior can really drive these types of things. And that's what we're seeing in these surges we're having is that human behavior is essentially dictating the surges because people will slow down on, on wearing masks and social distancing. Cases will go up. They'll, re, they'll reinstitute the social distancing and the masking. They'll go down and vice versa. So, you know, we all get fatigued. We all get tired of it. But we're at the point now where we need to make sure that we keep doing what we're doing for a few more months to get through this. Okay. Um, good to reinforce the, the learnings from the uh, dedication to understanding the science and the safety around J&J &J and um, other any other concerns to come up is to say these are safe and, and you should get vaccinated. Um, although I'm sure, uh, and you probably have it as well, a, a family member, a distant family member, a friend, co-worker, someone who says, I'm just not going to get the vaccine. How, how, do, how do we start that conversation in a way that doesn't become a, you know, a political or religious debate about why you should get the vaccine? And that's the biggest thing to make sure it doesn't become a battle because they're going to draw their lines in the sand and you're going to have your lines in the sand and nobody's going to get anywhere with the information. And for me, the, the best way to do it and the way I try to do it both here and with my patients is you know, essentially, okay, try to get an understanding of why you don't want to get it. And one of the big examples I can give is a lot of women were hesitant to get it because they, they had heard that it could prevent them from having babies. It could cause infertility or lessen their chances of having babies. And what I would tell them is like, if you actually look at what happened there, go back to the source, it was a doctor that even before the vaccines became available was starting to say, hey, if this one ingredient, if it's given in huge doses could cause infertility problems, well, somehow that morphed into these vaccines can cause infertility problems, but they found out in the human trials, they found out through this 190 million people that have gotten the vaccines, it hasn't caused any issues with infertility. And so again, just getting to that source of the information, you know, number one, what information are you getting? And number two, where are you getting it from? And then trying to give them information on, on you know, through reputable sources, but also with the understanding is they're not going to change their view in that conversation. It's gonna take a few conversations to change their view. And one thing we're finding out that Kaiser Family Foundation actually has done studies since January, looking at people's vaccine hesitancy. And that hesitancy has really started to come down, mainly because I think so many people are getting it and not having issues, able to do a few more things because they have the vaccine that other people who are more hesitant are saying, you know, maybe it's something I ought to get to. Okay. Um, we're obviously now talking about how to, how to uh, respond to the pandemic that's underway. But how do we individually or collectively make sure that we're as prepared as we can so that we don't have something like this happen again? What what lessons should we be taking away? Lots and lots of toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, it was, it was interesting at the beginning because I was like everybody else, you know, oh my gosh, we need toilet paper. And there's, there's certain things in life that you really, you know, you think you need that you don't necessarily need and, and other things that you do need that you don't necessarily think about. So, uh, kind of preparing your home for, again, we talked about this earlier, where up until now, most of us are pretty, have been pretty assured that if something happens, there'll be rescuers coming in to help me out. 
But one thing we found out in the pandemic, it was so, such a global event that nobody was there to help anybody else out. So you, your family, your loved ones, your community, were all on their own to try and get through this, at least the initial stages of it. And so having that preparation in place. And if you remember early on in the pandemic, you know, we joke about toilet paper, but that was hard to find. Food was hard to find. You go to grocery stores and the, and the shelves would be wiped out. And so just having those supplies on hand, even if it's just for a couple of weeks worth of supply, can really help you get through situations like that. And these are not going to be gourmet type foods, but these are going to be foods that are palatable and can get you through there. And I put a list in my book, but essentially it boils down to, you know, things like beans that, you know, are going to hold on, you know, dried beans that are going to hold out for a while, rolled oats. Those things are going to be good for, for a long time. Honey is good forever. Even if it crystallizes, you can just heat it back up and it'll get back to its natural state. Honey's good forever. You know, these different food sources and food supplies that you can just have on a shelf somewhere that you can go to if you need to, you know, they make these prepackaged food bins you can get that will survive, you know, a family of four for four weeks or something like that. Those are good. I think it's good starters, but they're not very customized. And so you can do that on your own. And again, in the book, I run down a list of different food items that would help to have in your house, even peanut butter, peanut butter keeps for a long time. It's high in protein. I love peanut butter. And so one of those things that can certainly sustain you as the weeks go on until things start opening up a little bit, maybe help can come to you or maybe you can help yourself because there's more supplies out there. But I think in a pandemic, we learned that we have to be a little bit more self-sufficient than we thought we had to be, especially as the time goes on and, and as this thing starts turning more and more global. Okay. Um, so one of the things you talk about in your book uh, is ensuring that you're thinking about this collectively as your family and that they're they're prepared and we're all prepared on including you know, what, what's the ABCD plans for, for uh, where we're going to meet up. But how do you talk to kids, especially young kids, um, about things like pandemics and disasters without scaring them or getting them overly anxious about um, safety? No, that's a great question because you have to tailor your message depending on the kids. It's different talking to a 16-year-old, sorry, to a 16-year-old than it is to a six-year-old. You know, so you know, the 16-year-old has been, you know, through 16 years of life and they're fairly callous in a lot of things. And so you can pretty much be open with them. The six-year-old, you don't want to scare them too much. You don't want to give them nightmares or problems sleeping or anything like that or worries during the day. And so part of it is giving them a little bit of information, but also listening a lot and saying, you know, what, what do you understand about, you know, let's say, and playing little games with them, which I would do all the time with our family. We sit around the house, you know, before we turn on TV for the night, you know, to some family program we're going to watch, I would say, hey, if we had to get out of the house real quick, how would you get out of the house? You know, go through the front door. Okay, what if you couldn't go through the front door? And they would ask, you know, well, why couldn't I go through the front door? Well, let's say that something happened and there was a little fire there and we had to get out somewhere. How would you go? Well, I'd go downstairs and out the window. Okay, perfect. You know, all that stuff, you know, what would you take with you? You know, I take this. Do you really need that? Do you really need your pillow? I don't think so. You know, that kind of situation and just play little games with them. Like I said, when I went to movie theaters, I always tell my kids, especially when they're older, hey, if you had to leave real quick, how would you get out of here? You know, I'd go out through the back. Okay, great. Perfect. We know where the exits are. Uh, just, just situations like that. And just keep that going throughout the, the entire time. And, you know, in the book, I talk about the animal attacks say, you know, if you're hiking and with your family, you say all of a sudden, Hey, you know, what would you do if you saw a bear? You know, well, I do this. I do that. Okay. Yeah, it's good. Let's talk about that for a minute. And it's, it's educational too. You know, what do bears like to do? Well, they like to chase things. Okay. So you, you want to run? Oh, not really. You know, because I don't want them to chase me. Okay, great. So just stand there and back up a little bit slowly. And that, that can help get you out of there. So just keep that dialogue going. But the important part of that dialogue is listening to them, listening to what they know already, because they're going to surprise you how much they already know. They they talk about a lot of these things at school, too. Yeah. Unfortunately, doing uh, active shooter drills and things there. Yeah. yeah. They're thinking about these things. Um, so as you as you wrote the book and as you've now been talking about it and had a lot of experience around this, are there common things that you see people just like don't understand, get wrong I mean, the running away from animals sounds like one that, you know, it might be a natural instinct as well to just disappear. But are there things that you'd say, you know, you may think that's right, but don't do that. Or you're not doing this. This is really important. You need to do this. You know, I think in each situation, there, there are specific things that you can do right and you can do wrong. But I think overall, the theme is to essentially what we talked about early on is number one, having that will to survive. Because sometimes people will literally just kind of sit there. The example I give in the book is, 
Um, if you think about it on an airplane, and part of this is just kind of taking us that second we talk about to think about things and then start moving as quick as you can, even if you move in the wrong direction, at least it's starting the moving process. And there have been instances of plane crashes where people have essentially been in their seats, buckled in and have died in the plane crash because they weren't, they didn't unbuckle themselves. Talking to survivors afterward, they said, well, it was really bizarre, but if you think about it, it's not too bizarre because if you think about it throughout your whole life, you have always opened a seatbelt by pushing on a button. And that's usually the seatbelt in your car. You push a button, there's usually a little latch there. You push down on it and the seatbelt pops up. Well, in an airplane, the seatbelt's a latch you open up. And so instinctively, when something like this happens in a disaster, you're going to revert to that instinct of pushing down on the button. And so that's where that take a second and just kind of think about things, you know, why is this not working? And this is not working because I'm doing it the wrong way, pull up on it. And so Again, just the biggest themes, I think, and I think the biggest thing that people uh, unfortunately fall prey to are panicking, you know, not necessarily taking that second or two to take a deep breath and move from where they need to move, and then not really analyzing their situation. And and that situational awareness itself is extremely important. We, We see people every day, we do it ourselves, where we're ingrained in our cell phone, you know, the videos that we make fun of of people walking into a pole or into a fountain, you know, we can see ourselves doing that too. So just have an understanding of your surroundings. And if something does happen, take a second to analyze what's going on and then move from there. Okay, great. And um, as you've been out talking about this book and talking about these kinds of things, what what are the, the questions that people ask you or reacted to that you didn't think you'd get? Is there something that you go, wow, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that as I was writing it? You know, surprisingly, the biggest question I get is about the mall, about what do I do when I go in the mall? You know, because people, I think, are so ingrained into going to malls, they don't think about, okay, I'm, I'm going there for a specific purpose or to have fun with my friends. I'm not going there to think about these things. And I think the biggest thing that, that surprised me is that people, well, they understand that they can still do, they can still think of these things without being too paranoid about them. Because up until now, my thinking was, okay, my concern was that I was going to get people paranoid about these types of situations. But most of them have the understanding that, hey, these are things I just need to think about. This is the reality of our world versus, you know, if it's a man-made incident, like we talked about terrorist attack, that's a reality of the 21st century. But the other ones, you know, the wildfires, the hurricanes, the earthquakes, the tornadoes, those things, those have been around since the dawn of man, you know. And so those are things that we need to think about. But I think people get the understanding, too, that, hey, that, you know, I'm thinking about things that I don't expect, but now I'm starting to expect the unexpected. And so if it happens, I'll at least be a little prepared for it. And this is not going to get you in this book. No book is going to get you prepared for every situation thoroughly. But these are going to this is going to get you primed to at least start the process of being able to survive these things. And this book very well might save your life or, or the life of someone you love, because, again, it gives you that basic information on how to start the process. Okay. One of the um, interesting parts I read in your book is that the CDC actually has some preparatory preparatory material and a video on how to survive a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, it was funny when that came out, it was a few years ago when it came out, uh, this is when I was at NBC still, the, um, or I started NBC. We were all kind of taken back a little bit. Like, what is the CDC doing? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But in talking to the CDC, they're like, you know, we didn't do We know as well as everybody, there's no such things as zombies. But at the same time, this is when The Walking Dead was really popular. A lot of people are paying attention to zombies right now. And so the rules of a zombie attack are the same as the rules of any other situation. And so if you can be prepared for a zombie attack, you're going to be prepared for a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, a terrorist, incident, any of those things you're going to be prepared for as well. People aren't going to pay attention if we say how to prepare for a hurricane. You know, people just don't pay attention until they're in the middle of the hurricane. But if we say how to prepare for a zombie attack, at least they'll get a little bit of education off of that. And they can start educating their kids as well, because the kids are really engrossed into these zombie attack type situations, these zombie apocalypses. And so that'll give them the information. And again, it'll start the dialogue of, you know, okay, what, okay, granted, we're not going to have zombie attacks, but. Why is it important that we have a go back? Why is it important that we have an escape route? Why is it important that we have a rally plan? You know, why are those things important? Because we know they're important in the zombie attack, which we'll never have, but could they be important in other parts of life? And so the CDC was very smart about starting that 
to start the dialogue to get more people interested in disaster preparedness. And it worked really well. That's great. Well, uh, it, it's a reminder that uh, you got to get people's attention on these things. And, and that's a, an interesting way if, if people are paying attention to, to zombies that aren't going to see. But you're not paying attention to things could happen. And you bring up a great point. It's tough to get people's attention because, number one, it's something they don't think is necessarily going to affect them throughout their life. But also, I think, number two, is they don't want to think about it because it's like it's like a lot of things. It's like our health. Like, you know, if we start having a little something that that could potentially be cancer, we don't really want to think about it. And same thing here with disaster preparedness. I don't really want to think about something bad. I want to think about something good. So we don't tend to prepare for it as much. But these things certainly help move towards that. Well, we are unfortunately about at that time where we need to to end the conversation. But I do want to, before I do that, thank you for uh, being that attention gatherer on this topic. I, I will say, having uh, read your book, that what I'm going to do is uh, is get three copies of them, have one of them on my in my uh, room with my my bag when if something happens, and I'm going to give one to each of my daughters to have in, in their place because it's not only uh, good and readable; it's also very practical with nice checklists and things added. So thank you very much for the attention. You know, when we put this together, we thought, okay, you know, we released it now because, okay, great for Father's Day, but also for kids going off to college. I would have loved to have had this before I went through survival training. Yeah, it's, it's uh, again, I, I just, even if you just take the appendix and, and give the uh, checklist to everyone, that's a very valuable thing to just say, here's what you need to do and think about. So thank you for doing that. Great. Thank you. Dr. Torres, again, thank you for spending the time with us and encourage everyone to pick up your copy of Dr. Torres's new book, Dr. Disaster's Guide to Surviving Everything at your local bookstore. It's a distinctive yellow emergency cover to make sure that you're reading that. Again, thank you to Dr. Torres, our senior medical correspondent for NBC and NBC News for spending the afternoon or part of the afternoon with us and for his great work on his new book and helping us all be prepared for things that uh, may come our way. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit commonwealthclub.org. And I'm Lenny Mendoza. Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.